Hey, Central Vineyard. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about community. A community is one of those words that can mean many things to many people. To narrow the scope a little, we've been looking at Jesus' vision of community and what it means for us here at Central Vineyard. Today, I want to highlight a couple of barriers that can get in the way of us experiencing community the way Jesus intended. Now, there's a bit to get through, so I'll just jump right on in. The first barrier is undervaluing community. Fergus Miller, an academic historian, wrote this. The spread of Christianity must indeed be taken as the single most important development which occurred in the period from the reign of Augustus to the death of Constantine. Now these are pretty strong words from a secular writer, and he is not alone in his convictions. The incredible growth of Christianity is arguably the most remarkable sociological movement in history. When you look at the numbers, they are staggering. It is generally agreed that Christians started with only a few dozen followers in 30 AD. By 350 AD, their figure was over 30 million, with Christians making up the clear majority of the Roman Empire. Rodney Stark, a sociologist, wrote, Jesus was a teacher and miracle worker who spent nearly all of his brief ministry in the tiny and obscure province of Galilee, often preaching to outdoor gatherings. A few listeners took up his invitation to follow him, and a dozen or so became his devoted disciples. But when he was executed by the Romans, his followers probably numbered no more than several hundred. He then asked this question, which many other scholars are asking. How was it possible for this obscure Jewish sect to become the largest religion in the world? One of the big reasons for the growth of the Christian church, according to scholars studying ancient history, was not solely the teaching. They believed people were converted, not because of what the early Christians believed, but because of the way in which the early Christians behaved. Joseph Hallerman from the book, When the Church Was a Family, stated it was the social solidarity experienced in the early Christian churches that caused others to embrace becoming a Jesus follower. He said this, It was not that loving one's neighbours was solely a Christian virtue, it was that the Christians appeared to practice it much more effectively. The early Christians' love and community was really unique for that time. They were living as a highly unlikely family, with many coming coming together that usually wouldn't. It was multiracial. There were people with noble of birth and those that weren't. They were slave and free, and they were sharing common life like a family. They were known for not only looking after their own community so well, but for looking after those outside of their own new family. If somebody was sick, if someone was poor, the Christians would care for them. There was nothing to gain from it. They did it because of the desire to follow the ways of their teacher, Jesus. Which is what Jesus commanded in John 13, 35, when he says to his disciples, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. 
The demonstration of love is seen in Acts, Acts 2, 42-47, where it says all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, and to sharing in meals and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Now let's pause for a moment. It is so easy to be inspired and marvel at what was done then and fail to ask the question, what can history teach us today for us now? And there is a lot in that text that we can draw from, but I want to focus on the general theme, which is this. Ordinary people, empowered by the Holy Spirit, coming together and earnestly practicing the teachings of Jesus can change the world. Do we believe this for us today? I know I don't all the time. At times, if we're honest, we undervalue the impact our small group can do in our lives, the lives of others, let alone Auckland and the rest of the world. It can be so easy for us to downplay the group of people in our circle community, brushing it off as just a small group of ordinary people doing ordinary practices such as sharing a meal, praying, worshipping God and being generous with each other. But God never downplays a group because of their size or of people's ordinariness. Right from the beginning, Jesus chose quality over quantity ordinariness over the exceptional. Instead of choosing the exceptional, knowledgeable theologians for his disciples, Jesus chose some college dropouts, the untrained in theology. The disciples frequently made mistakes. They doubted, they reacted, were distractible, one betrayed him, and some were even external processes. (laughs) I added that as if that were a bad thing. We love you too, external processes. But he saw the beauty, the value in them, and he patiently guided them, transforming them over time. In Acts, we read how the early church met together and were in awe of what the Holy Spirit was doing. There were miracles and radical generosity, and it sounds amazing. And at the same time, I bet there were also moments where meeting up didn't always feel like they were achieving much or displaying God's kingdom. I'm sure at times when the disciples or the early church were sharing a meal together, it would have felt rather simple and ordinary. God's value in community and his willingness to work through us in our ordinariness does not change, even when sometimes we don't feel it. We sometimes need to lift our eyes up to remind ourselves of how God works, to look at history and how God views each and every one of us 
to restore our views on the value of community in our life. Margaret Mead, um, she's an American anthropologist and sociologist. She studied men like William Wilberforce and Nelson Mandela who changed history, but they did not do it alone. They always did it with a small group of people surrounding them, doing seemingly small acts, giving themselves to the vision, praying together regularly. And at times they failed and then they had some successes. They kept going, moving towards their big vision to abolish slavery, to fight against the apartheid movement and they did it together. Margaret Mead said this after studying them. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. Never doubt that a small group, thoughtful, committed people can change the world. Do you believe that? Do you believe that about your community group, your circle? Can you look around your group and your circle and community and see the value in them, the way Jesus looked at his disciples? Rob and I met a few celebrities while we were living in London through our jobs, which which was fun. Um, I remember one time, David and Victoria Beckham came into Rob's school to pick up their son. And you should have heard the talk amongst the teachers. It was one of awe, wonder and amazement. It's all too easy to look at celebrities in awe and wonder and then fail to see the value in the seemingly ordinary people around us. I would love for us to fully see the value and awesomeness in the people around us the same way. For us to be like, wow, have you met Roseanne? Have you met met Bethany? Chelsea, Graham, Lauren, Cherise, Mike, Terangi, Maria, Jen, Toby... I wish I could name all of you. Um, They're amazing. And for us to assign value to and see people the way God sees them. Eugene Peterson said this, A community of faith flourishes when we view each other with this expectancy, wondering what God will do today in this one and in that one. When we are in community with those Christ loves and redeems, we are constantly finding out new things about them. They are new people each morning, endless in their possibilities. We explore the fascinating depths of their friendship, share the secrets of their quest. Now the second barrier is when we idealise community. Now we all have desires and hopes and expectations when embarking on something new, like maybe a new job or a new relationship. And some of these desires and expectations are conscious and some we may not be aware of until these expectations aren't met. What happens though when we bring these desires and expectations into a church community? According to church leaders, There are four common phases people go through when entering a church community. The first phase is called the heavenly phase. This is the early days of attending a new community or church and is often marked by romanticism. Just like it is when you're in a new relationship with someone, 
you're excited. It's hard to see the flaws and the mistakes. It's hard to see the sins of people. Why? Because you just got there. Everything and everyone seems wonderful. And perhaps you're new to Central Vineyard. In fact, perhaps you're so new that you've been watching us online but have never visited us. But you're thinking maybe, wow, this church is awesome. Maybe you're thinking, I love their teaching. Uh, they seem passionate, but not too hyper-spiritual. I agree with all their programs they have on, the communication, and especially the creative design. I can't wait to meet them. This is going to be the best church around. <sighs> and don't get me wrong. I love Central Vineyard. The people here are great, godly, wise, and generous, but stick around. Stick around for just a little bit. Because what often happens next is this stage. The disillusionment phase. This is the letdown period. Where you find out that the church has flaws. And people aren't as loving and kind, selfless, wise, whatever you want to put, fill in the blank, as you thought. You find out that the leader of the church, me, maybe Dan or Rob or Gabs, Vivek or Ella, doesn't see everything in the same way that you do. And this is where disappointment, anguish and despair comes. And this is a time where people often want to leave. They're missing the heavenly phase. But if you remain in the community, hopefully you'll move to the next phase, which is the recognition phase. This is where you come to the conclusion that the community you're in isn't heaven or hell. It's not full of either absolute angels or whatever you've been calling them in your mind. Rather, it's full of broken people who likely have been formed through their own experiences, their own trauma and imperfect families. This is where we ourselves recognise and acknowledge our own unrealistic expectations. In this phase, Instead of running away from the feeling of disappointment or pain, we commit to our community and practice communicating with others directly. We learn how to have tough conversations and work things out while honouring each other. It's recognising that sometimes we are the ones that need to sacrifice or die to our own ideas, opinions, for the sake of the community. And if we can get through this phase of acknowledgement, awareness and sacrifice, we get to the final phase. Love. New Testament love. Now this is still imperfect love, but it's where we are committed to practicing the art of loving others as Jesus taught. This love puts others first. It is willing to sacrifice something. This love doesn't leave when it gets hard. It's not a feeling, but rather a commitment to will the good of another above ourselves. It applies to our friends and our enemies. It is eating and laughing together alongside the hard conversations and disagreements. Paul summarises this beautifully in 1 Corinthians 13, exhorting the church and how they are to love in community. This love is patient. It is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. 
It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. New Testament love is less about feeling good, instead thinking of others through a commitment to unity, which is strengthened by habit and reinforced by grace from God. Now, unfortunately, this beautiful linear approach from heavenly to disillusionment to recognition to love to God's vision for the church, it doesn't happen often. Instead, what usually happens is we bounce back and forth between the heavenly and disillusionment phase. Often sounds like this. Here we are in the heavenly stage. Oh, it's amazing. I love it. Then we become disillusioned. So we try another circle. I'm excited about this one. This one's different. They have such a fire, different fire for God. But then, oh, we've hit that wall of disillusionment again. Um, Then we try another group. Going to go to gratis this time. They seem different. Oh, (laughs) we're back to being disillusioned again. For which by this time we go, this church is rubbish. And then we start the whole cycle again with the next church. When we are jumping from one community to the next, trying to find the ideal community, it's like looking for the magical unicorn. It doesn't exist, no matter how much my three-year-old tells me it does. It can be so easy for us to damage and destroy the reality of what is your community right in front of you in the name of an idealistic vision. If we're going to mature in being Christ followers, if we're going to take seriously the command that he said in John 13, we need to learn how to manage our idealistic views of Christian community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we've talked about him before, he was a German pastor and theologian, and he created a co-housing community during the Nazi years in Germany, focused on living out the principles and teachings of Jesus. He wrote a book called Life Together, for which he said this soccer punch quote about idealizing community. He says, The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. Those who dream of this idealized community demand that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. They enter the community of Christians with their demands set up by their own law and judge one another and God accordingly. Dietrich then goes on to explain in his book, that it should be a grateful heart instead of a demanding heart that we should have for a community to flourish. How often have we come into environments with a demanding heart instead of a grateful one? How many churches split? How many friendships are broken because of the damage done by our idealism and romanticism? Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have any expectations 
nor am I saying that we should commit and surrender our whole self to the very first circle of church we enter for the rest of our lives. There is wisdom in who you place yourself around, who is in your life, depending on what season you are in. I'm also very well aware that some people and churches are toxic and abusive, and there are times where it's unwise for us to be a part of. However, my challenge for us today is that if we find that we are oscillating between these first two phases of heavenly and disillusionment, when we find that our pattern of behaviour is to run away when we are disappointed or cut people out of our lives, can I encourage us to commit, to remain and work through these differences with grace, vulnerability, honesty and love? If you have been hurt in the past from other people or churches, seek out healing. But don't use your hurt as excuses to not love and become vulnerable. There is no doubt about it. Being in the two phases isn't a walk in the park. We're not going to drift into New Testament love by somehow bypassing that disillusionment and recognition phases. But I believe if we can fight and work through this with the grace of God, then we find that our unity together is based on much more than our shared opinions or preferences. We're not gathering around our common interests based on our political views or vaccination statuses. We're not gathering around our ethnic groups or Enneagram numbers. We're gathering around Jesus. C.S. Lewis said, We don't come to church to be a church. We come to Christ and then we are built up as a church. If we come to Christ, if we come to church just to be with one another, one another is all we'll get and it isn't enough. Inevitably, our hearts will grow empty and then angry. If we put community first, we will destroy community. But if we come to Christ first and submit ourselves to him, and draw life from him, the community gets traction. We have an opportunity to not just participate and join a circle, which is a great start and I encourage you to do it, but to really practice the spiritual discipline of community modelled to us by Jesus, loving and valuing people for whom they are, broken yet wildly beautiful. We have the opportunity here at Central Vineyard to be people known for their love of each other that brings about transformation of our lives for those around us and our nation just like the early church did through communities of love. Much love Central Vineyard.